certainly has been nice to be with you today. We had a fine uh, meal together and opportunity to visit for a little while. And I've been in these meetings before where we meet in the morning and then we go to lunch and we come back early afternoon. And a lot of places I've been, the crowd falls off quite a bit for that afternoon session, but looks like all or most of you have come back, and we really appreciate it. We have a wonderful audience here for this hour. We're glad to have all of you. And I have to say that I am glad that my wife was able to come with me on this trip. She is not able to go on all the trips that I make out to preach somewhere, but one reason I'm especially glad that she was able to come with me on this trip was to hear those very fine introductions by Doug Smith. <laughs> Does my heart good to know that she heard all those nice things he had to say. He really knows how to make you feel good. Doug, I'll have to tell you, I heard Brother Nichols a few years ago, Gus Nichols, some of you knew. He received a very glowing introduction. And when he got up to speak, he said, now I know how a pancake feels when it has syrup poured all over it. <laughs> but I thought to myself, what is a pancake without syrup? That really makes it. So I really appreciate these words of introduction and all the nice things that Doug has had to say. And I appreciate all the very encouraging remarks that you have made during our break and our visit together. Appreciate it very much. I really believe these lessons are important. I probably have indicated that by the manner in which I've presented them, that I'm enthusiastic about it, very passionate about it. And I am glad that you are interested and that these lessons have some meaning for those of you that have been here. And we're going to wind up the thought in our afternoon session. I sometimes say that there are five periods of church history. Number one, the New Testament period, the beginning of the church in Acts 2, the establishment of the church, the early days of the church throughout the first century. Number one, therefore, the New Testament church. Number two, we talked about this more fully at our first lesson, the apostasy or the falling away from the original church. So number one, the New Testament church. Number two, the falling away. The third period of church history is sometimes called the Dark Ages. And that is the period during which the apostasy grew and developed in the way that it did. There were many departures from the truth, many corruptions of the original plan that God had given. And that brings you to number four that we talked about in the second period today the Protestant Reformation, where the men began to realize that there had been a corruption of the New Testament order, and they wanted to reform Catholicism and to weed out all of the abuses that had crept in. And we talked about that and how as a result of the work of Martin Luther, there were many other denominations that began. And that brings us now to the fifth period of history of the church, and that is what we sometimes call the restoration. And one of the most important aspects of our study at this time is to distinguish in the words reformation and 
restoration. Reformation is from the word reform, which means to correct. So the idea of the reformation was to reform, to correct the abuses that had developed throughout all of the dark ages in Roman Catholicism. And that is what Luther and others were striving to do. They wanted to correct the abuses. They wanted to reform. They did not actually start out to begin a new church. It ultimately resulted in that with Luther, the Lutheran church, and Calvin and others bringing about some uh, additional religious groups and denominations. But in the beginning, the idea simply was, let us reform out the abuses that have developed during Catholicism. Well, now then, what we want to emphasize in our study at this hour is that distinction between Reformation and Restoration. And I want to define restore in a way that I think all of us could uh, understand. To restore is to place back in original condition. And I might illustrate that by talking about a restored vehicle. Somebody might restore an old car. And here's a car that came out in the 30s or the 40s and driven during that period of time and maybe it rusted or some things were wrong with it. And so somebody that is skilled in that regard restores that automobile. What do they do? Place it back in original condition, sometimes able to find original parts and put in there. And you see those restored automobiles that have been corrupted or rusted and they are restored or put back in original condition. Another example of that is the restoration of furniture. You might have an old antique chair or an antique table, and uh, it has come apart, broken down, but there are people that are skilled in restoring that furniture. I wish I could do that. I admire people that are able to do woodwork. I don't have that talent, but I admire those that do. They can take a piece of furniture that was made out of fine wood at one time, and it has now fallen apart. They can put it back together. They can glue it. They can sand it down. They can varnish it. They can make it look almost like a new piece of furniture, although the wood probably in that old piece is better than what they could buy in a new piece today. But when you restore an old car or you restore an old piece of furniture, you are simply bringing it back to its original condition. So that is what we mean by the word restore. So the meaning of restoration now, as we're talking in a historical sense, and especially with regard to a religious sense, the meaning of restoration is to restore the New Testament church in its zeal, teaching, and practice. To speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent. To return to the New Testament as our authority and our guide. So just as you might restore a car or a piece of furniture, what we're talking about in the spiritual sense is to restore New Testament Christianity, the New Testament church, in the sense that we are bringing it back to its original condition. 
So that is a very important concept for us to realize as we study. Now let me distinguish just a moment here Reformation and Restoration because that is vital to our study. Those that were part of what we studied earlier today called the Protestant Reformation were trying to reform Catholicism. Catholicism was an apostasy or a falling away from the original church. And eventually men began to realize what had happened. They saw all of the changes. They saw all of the corruptions. They saw all of the abuses that we have indicated. And they wanted to reform Catholicism by ridding it of those abuses, eliminating all of those corruptions, so that they reformed the existing body. The idea of restoration, however, is not the same as reformation. It is not trying to reform the apostate church. Instead, it is reaching back to the New Testament. It is reaching back to the first century. It is reaching back beyond all of those years of the Reformation and the beginning of all of these different denominations that exist in our world today. And as we pointed out earlier, none of them is yet 500 years old other than Roman Catholicism and the Greek Orthodox body. Uh, All of the Protestant denominations, as they are known, uh, were established uh, from and after the work of Luther in 1517. And it has not yet been 500 years. So mainly the churches that are all around us today are relatively new. They are babes in the sense of first century Christianity. They do not relate back to what happened in the New Testament. They began as an effort to reform the Roman Catholic Church. I will say that churches of Christ are not and never have been a part of the Protestant Reformation. A number of years ago, Brother Batchel Baxter put out a little tract that had a nice title to it. He said, neither Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. We uh, have gone beyond the Jewish age and the Old Testament. We are not a part of the Catholic movement. We're not a part of the Protestant movement. And that is why the term restoration is so important. We're not in the Protestant Reformation. We're not trying to reform the abuses that developed in Catholicism. But what we're endeavoring to do is to reach all the way back beyond that. We're trying to go back beyond Rome. We're trying to go back beyond Constantinople. We're trying to go back beyond Greek Orthodoxy. We're trying to go back beyond Roman Catholicism. We're trying to go all the way back, back, back to the New Testament, to the first century, and not to reform, but to be what they were, to restore New Testament Christianity in the present age. Denominationalism, as we have indicated, especially in our study prior to this, began about 500 years ago. It is not a part of God's original plan. I don't know how to emphasize that thoroughly enough. I don't know how to convey that effectively enough to the world at large. Most people out here have never thought about it. You have people that are members of one denomination or another. Some of them have been in that all of their lives. They've never known anything other than that. 
And they have never stopped to think that these are human organizations begun by men, not begun in the New Testament, not started by Christ, but they came into being as a part of a historical movement that was resisting Roman Catholicism. And how to convey that message to the world at large is truly a challenge. To get people to understand that these are bodies that have only been around for about 500 years and they do not reach back to the first century at all. What we're trying to do is go back behind that, beyond that. We're trying to reach back all the way to the beginning, not to reform Roman Catholicism, but to have a restoration of what we read about in the New Testament. To be what they were, to become what they became, to obey the gospel that they obeyed, and to be precisely and exactly what they were without addition, without subtraction, and without modification. Now, I showed this uh, picture a little earlier today, but I put it in here again in order to uh, emphasize what we're doing and where we're going. This is a picture of the door in Wittenberg, Germany, where in the year 1517, on October 31, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses the 95 challenges to Roman Catholicism. You might say the 95 propositions for debate, where that he said, here are the things that I find wrong with Catholicism. And bear in mind that Luther was a member of the Catholic Church at this time. He was a priest in the Catholic Church. He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. So this is not some outsider criticizing the Roman Catholic Church. This is a man who was a member, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and he nails 95 criticisms known as the 95 Theses to the door of this church in Wittenberg, Germany. And when Luther did that, it began to spread. Others began to hear about it. It went far and wide. There were others who said, well, I've seen these same uh, errors. I've recognized these same false doctrines. I've seen these same erroneous practices. And so the Reformation began to grow and people began to get excited about it and they began to leave the Catholic Church and uh, to make an effort to reform what the Catholic Church had done. And so then you had the beginning of denominationalism, first Luther and then Calvin and then uh, Henry VIII over in England and then John Wesley and then you had uh, John Smith and others down through the pages of history who established this church or that church or this denomination or that denomination. And so over a period of time, as I mentioned earlier today, you got about 400 different mainline denominations. And if you count all the independent groups in the country, you probably have about 20,000 different religious groups or organizations throughout the world or even throughout our own nation. So this is the result of the Reformation. They started out to reform Roman Catholicism, and over a period of time, it resulted in the proliferation of all these different bodies. So Reformation or Restoration? Reformation is to reform. Restoration is to restore. The Reformation caused or brought about denominationalism. And these are not the same. Restoration is different from Reformation. Well, there came a time after Luther and Wesley and Calvin and all of these different religious leaders, Henry VIII, 
who had established uh, all of these different churches that we still see around us today. Uh, less than 500 years ago, all of them came into existence. There came a time that men began to look around, and as Luther had at the beginning of the Reformation, they began to see the corruptions and abuses that had developed in Protestantism. Luther saw what Catholicism had done, indulgences, and all of the additions that they had made, all of the changes they had made. By the way, Luther didn't correct all of them. And so you still had sprinkling and other things that had been introduced by the Roman Catholic Church that Luther did not challenge. But he was trying to correct abuses that developed in Catholicism. He reached a point where he was able to see where they had gone and what they had done. Well, the same kind of thing happened at the beginning of the Restoration. There were those like Luther who looked around and they said, wait a minute, we may have been right in resisting Roman Catholicism. We may have been right in opposing the errors that had developed through the dark ages. But look what we have as a result of that. We have a multiplicity of divisions. And so here is this denomination and that denomination and another denomination and a different group over here. This group wears one name. That group wears another name. This group still a different name. This group teaches one plan of salvation. That group has another plan of salvation. This group has one kind of worship. This group over here is a different kind of worship. And on and on and on. And this group had a creed. And this other group over here developed a creed. It was different to the one the first group had. And then a third group, they have a creed. And it is different to the one that the others had before it. So on and on and on. And think about all of the divisions in the world. There was a man named William Miller about 1843 who prophesied the world was coming to an end in October of that year. Later changed it to the next year, 1844. And of course the world did not end and many of his followers were disappointed. And he had one young woman, however, who still believed that what he taught was right but he just got the event wrong. It was not the end of the world that was coming in that year, but it was something else that she had a revelation, she said, that it involved something else. And she had another revelation that uh, she went to heaven and saw the Ten Commandments, and the Fourth Commandment was surrounded in a gold halo. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so that young woman named Ellen G. White became the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the emphasis that they made was that uh, we ought to be observing the Seventh-day Sabbath such as they had in the Old Testament. And you could just go on and on to all these different groups that have come into existence. And they had some uh, charismatic leader, someone that was able to persuade people. And uh, they had a different doctrine to the group before them. And they began to teach that doctrine. Uh, there was a woman named uh, Mary Baker Eddy. And she established a group called Christian Science. And she said there's no such thing as pain it is only a figment of the imagination. You do not really feel pain. It is in the mind. 
And so the way to cure illness or sickness is to cure the mind so that you don't any longer realize pain or recognize disease. And so she said there is no such thing. A lot of people don't know that Mark Twain wrote a book about Christian science. Famous Mark Twain, the author. I have a copy of it. It's a right entertaining book to read. And Twain starts out about how he was visiting over in Switzerland in the Alps. And he said he was out mountain climbing one day and he fell and he broke his leg. And they carried him back to the lodge where he was staying. And he said, get me a doctor. And they said, we don't have any doctors around here. But they said, we do have a Christian science practitioner. And we'll get her to come. She came and she told Mark Twain, you have no pain. He said, ma'am, are you crazy? He said, I fell off a mountain and broke my leg. She said, you have no pain. There is no such thing as pain. It's all in your mind. It's a matter of imagination. Well, he said several days later, he was able to find a veterinarian who came and set his leg. But she continued to visit with him and tell him he had no pain. It was all in his mind. It was just a matter of his imagination. He said when she finished her treatment, she sent him a bill. Mark Twain said, I paid her with an imaginary check. <laughs> well, there was Mary Baker Eddy, so he started another church. But she had a different slant. She had a different idea. So here's Ellen G. White. Here's Mary Baker Eddy. And so on with all of these groups you can think about. They all had some different angle. They had some different doctrine that they emphasized that some other group didn't. And so it just kept growing and growing and growing until you have these 400 different religious bodies. And there came a time that people began to see that. And they recognized this group is divided from that group. This group is divided from another group. This group wears one name. That group wears another name. Is that what the Lord envisioned when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church? And of course, the answer to that necessarily is no, no, no. For the apostle Paul said, there is one body and the body is the church. There never was any authority for the idea of having 400 different churches for all these different people. I heard a man pray one time. He said, we are thankful that we have the church of our choice. And uh, later he was explaining that. He said, you know, you have some people over here that are very emotional. And he said, it is good that we have the Pentecostal church because it's a very emotional religion. And they can go to the Pentecostal church and he said they can shout and they can dance around and they can raise their hands and there's a church that is suited to them. And he said on the other hand, there are some people that are very formal and they are very uh, stiff and uh, regimented. And he said it's so good that we have the Episcopalian church because it is very formal and so it fits their personality. And he said, it's just wonderful that we have all these churches and that everybody can find one that fits his or her personality. Emotional, Pentecostal, formal, Episcopalian, others that are in between. And he was just thankful that with all the different personalities and all the different styles that we have as individuals, here is a church to fit all these different situations. And I thought immediately about the second chapter of the book of Ephesians because there are no two people any more divergent than the Jews and the Gentiles. 
The Jews were of one background and one belief, the Gentiles of another. But in Ephesians chapter 2, down about verse 16, it is said, God reconciled them both in one body by the cross. Brother, that answers it. He didn't have one church for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. And I'm going to tell you, they had more differences than the Pentecostals and the Episcopalians. They were totally different. They had utterly different backgrounds, totally different expectations. But they were reconciled unto God by one body through the cross. And so there's what the Word of God teaches, not 400 different churches to represent 400 different kinds of personalities and expectations, but God brings all together in his plan in one body by the cross. So as people began to realize, look, there was an effort to reform Catholicism. It has become known as the protest or Protestant reformation, reform, to reform the errors out here in Catholicism. But all that has done is resulted in this church, this church, this church, this church, all of these different bodies, and that is not what God envisioned. And so was born the realization that instead of reformation or apostasy that developed into Catholicism, now then the idea is let's just go back to the Bible. Let's just restore what existed in Bible times. Let us speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Let us do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. Oh, that was the most thrilling plea that was ever enunciated. And the idea that now we can just be what people were in the New Testament, no more, no less, no different. We can just go back and do what they did. We can become what they became. And they were not members of any denomination. You take on the day of Pentecost, for example. Peter preached that day about Jesus being the Son of God. That's what his sermon was about. Proved it three ways. Number one, he said he was the fulfillment of prophecy. Number two, he said he did miracles and signs and wonders in the midst of you as ye yourselves know. And you remember Nicodemus said, no man can do the signs thou doest except God be with him. So uh, Peter in his sermon on Pentecost proved Jesus to be the Son of God because he fulfilled prophecy and because he was able to work miracles and wonders and signs and primarily because he was resurrected from the dead. Those are the three points that are made by the Apostle Peter in his sermon on Pentecost. And those people that are out there in the audience who uh, less than two months before had been out there in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Now then they're looking at one another and saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered and said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the very one whom you crucified. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he convict and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked or untoward generation. Verse 41, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Oh, what a beautiful story. There's the beginning day of the church. There's the gospel preached for the first time in all of its fullness, including the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. There the apostle Peter establishes that the very one they crucified was the Son of God and the Lord of glory. And they are so moved by that. Here are people that only a few days before had been crying out for the blood of the Son of God, and they're now saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter is saying to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. 3,000 of them were baptized on that first day. And I ask you this question. I've asked it of denominational preachers and various ones through the years. Of what denomination were they members? I've never had even the most devout denominational preacher tell me that they were members of any denomination at all. There were no denominations in the first century. There were no denominations such as we know. I know there were religious divisions, but denominationalism such as we know, it did not exist in the first century. And so Peter said, repent and be baptized. 3,000 of them did it. They obeyed the gospel receive the remission or forgiveness of their sins, never join any denomination. What denominational name did they wear? Didn't wear any. What denominational creed did they accept? Didn't accept any. So here you have what people were in the New Testament and they weren't members of any denomination. So when the emphasis came to be made on restoration going back to the beginning people began to see why can't we do just what they did they heard the gospel it moved their hearts they believed it with every fiber of their being they repented of their sins, confessed Christ as Lord. They were buried with Christ in baptism for the remission or forgiveness of their sins, and they were added to the church. Do you know that's all I've ever done? I heard the Word of God. As a young man, I believed it. I was baptized into Christ. I never wore a sectarian name. I never subscribed to a human creed. I never became a member of any human ecclesiasticism. What is different about what I did than what they did? Whatever they did on the day of Pentecost, they were saved. 
Whatever they did on the day of Pentecost, they became members of the church. Whatever they did on the day of Pentecost, they never joined any denomination. They never wore any denominational name. Our plea is simply this, and I admit to you that we have not always articulated it very well. I know that some outside the church have bias, prejudice, hard feelings toward the church. You think you're better than everybody else. I've heard all of those things, heard most of them all of my life. But if we have left that impression, that's not what we teach. What we're endeavoring to teach is, let's lay aside every human creed. Let's lay aside every human name. Let us not be a part of any human organization. Let us just be Christians only. Members of the New Testament church, obedient to the same thing that people did on the day of Pentecost. That's our plea. And I want to close this... um, with an illustration. And I want you to think with me. Think with me now about this illustration. Suppose we have someone in this audience, or it wouldn't have to be here, it could be anybody in town, who defends the idea of belonging to this denomination or that denomination. I believe that's scripturally, I'm talking about the Bible, biblically indefensible, but somebody defends that. It's all they've ever known, what they've been all their life. So I want to ask you this as an illustration. Would it be okay if I established a church? Would that be okay? Let's just say that... um, I decided within myself, we'll call it the Hires Church. I think I've got as much right to put my name on one as people putting Luther's name on one. Or some other human name. And let us say that if you become a member of my church, you tell everybody, well, I'm a Hiresite. that be all right? Well, I can tell you it wouldn't be all right with me. It makes me uncomfortable even to say it. <laughs> I don't want anybody calling himself a higher than I. But you know in the New Testament they said, some say I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos. That's exactly what was going on. And you remember that Paul asked the question, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's what he's talking about. Men. Naming yourself after men. But I want to go back to my illustration for just a moment. I don't think there's anybody in this audience that won't join my church. And I commend you for that. I'm not saying there wouldn't be anybody anywhere because we have some mighty gullible people out here in the world. But... I don't think many people would be interested in a higher church or being called a higher-ite. But here's the point I want all of us 
to consider. Don't I have as much right to begin my own church as Luther or Calvin or John Wesley? All of those men started churches. Some of them are called after the name of the man, like Lutheran. Some are called after their method of organization, Methodists. Some are called with reference to their government, Presbyterian. The word presbyteros is a Greek word meaning uh, elder. And so they were governed by elders and they called their church by that name. And on and on you could go. Uh, All of these different names coming into being to represent some different idea, but all of these are bodies established by men or women, human beings. And think about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people that have joined them and call themselves by these unbiblical names. Nobody other than John in the New Testament was ever a Baptist. Nobody. And he was the. He wasn't one of. He was it. And you get all these different names together. None of these are found in the New Testament. But the point I'm trying to get off, and I hope really in an earnest way and thought-provoking, I want all of us to think about this, is... These bodies all came into existence by men. And I have as much right to start one as they did. I have as much right to give it a name as they did. And you know how much right that is? Zero. I don't have that right. But neither did they. Neither did they. And so the real plea of churches of Christ, whether we have always been very effective in stating it or not, the real plea of churches of Christ is, let us go back to the Bible. Let us have a, not reformation, but a restoration of New Testament, first century Christianity, Let us reach back over all of the ages and the things that men have done. Let us go back beyond Constantinople. Let us go back beyond Rome. Let us go all the way back to Jerusalem upon the first Pentecost day after the resurrection of our Lord as set out in Acts chapter 2. And let's do what they did and become what they became. I am thankful that today I do not have to defend being anything that I cannot read to you in the plain language of the Bible. Every group cannot say that. But I have never done anything that I cannot open my Bible and give you book, chapter, and verse. That is the plea of churches of Christ, not to be arrogant, not to be self-serving, not to be self-righteous, 
We don't want to be any of those things, even though some have thought we came across that way. Maybe sometimes we have not expressed ourselves very well. But our actual plea is, let us restore New Testament Christianity. People come into the services here, and the first thing they notice is, where's the piano? Where's the organ? And we're thought to be a little bit peculiar because we don't have instrumental music. Yet you go back to the New Testament, not there. Think about what restoration involves. If you restore a car, you may put a bumper back on it that uh, was an original of what was on cars of that time. But if you're really going to restore it, you don't put something on there that wasn't in the original. If all of you heard that Johnny Cash song where he gets part of one Cadillac, part of another year, and he puts them all together, and he's got double headlights on one side and single on the other side, and they ask him what the model of that car was, and you remember he said it was a 50, 55, 56, 57, 59 automobile or whatever it was. Well, that's, that's, that's sort of the way things are in religion nowadays. But if you're going to believe in restoration, restoring the New Testament church. Think about this with regard to the piano. How can you restore something that was never there? That's why we don't have it. Not to look down our noses at anybody else. We're just trying to be the New Testament church. We're trying to restore what they had in the beginning. We're trying to go back all the way to the first. We're trying to restore New Testament Christianity. And the absence of the instrument is just one factor in the idea of restoration to its original condition. So here's where we are. The church was established in the New Testament. It was the Lord's church. He said, I will build my church. Paul and others said there's going to be a falling away. There was a falling away. History confirms and corroborates that there was an apostasy from the original church. Eventually, men recognized the developments that had occurred in the apostasy, and they rose up and said, let's reform this, let's correct this. But instead, it just resulted in many, many other churches and divisions and so forth. And now then, there's this idea that I think supersedes all of this. Let's just go back to the beginning, restore New Testament Christianity, do what they did, become what they became. Whatever they became on the day of Pentecost, they never joined any denomination. So, can I do, can you do what they did on Pentecost and never be a member of any denomination? Absolutely. And it is such a comfort to be able to say and to be able to know that I am a member of the same body that you read about in the New Testament. I have done the same thing they did. I have become the same thing they became, and I'm just a simple New Testament Christian. That's our study. Thank you so much.
been very kind to me. Your attention has been highly respectful. I thank you for it. And if you put these three lessons together that we've examined today, I think you'll understand where denominationalism came from, why we have so many churches, and you'll understand the unique position churches of Christ are endeavoring to proclaim. I'm not going to ask you to become a member of any denomination. I'm not going to ask you to wear any denominational name. I'm not going to ask you to accept any denominational creed. I'm just going to say I'd like to see everyone here be a Christian. A Christian only, nothing else. Do what people did in the beginning, same thing. No more, no less. Become what they became. No more, no less. So if you are subject to the gospel invitation, you could do that today while we stand to sing.